questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Tonight's story reveals the globalist agendas of human trafficking and genocide for all mankind by way of being tethered to AI systems, experiments, torture, etc., wherein the ultimate objective is to network the biological systems of man with a system of artificial intelligence, reducing humanity to a totally controllable status. This is being accomplished through many different programs, operations, and applications that attack mankind's environment. The air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat, the products we use, and the information systems we are exposed to. Tonight's guest spent many years as a nun, serving peacefully within the Catholic Church. That is, until she was sexually assaulted by church clergy. After that experience, her search for justice and truth put her face to face with some of the highest powers in the world today, but not necessarily in a good way. Her intimate knowledge of the inner workings of the Roman Church and the evils that are hidden and covered up therein on a regular basis have become the very thing that has cost Berner's life to be in jeopardy. Between 2011 and December 2016, she survived more than 10 attempts on her life because of the knowledge she carries with her, knowledge of the Catholic Church's rampant sexual abuse that continues unabated today, knowledge of the U.S. government's desire to control the population by introducing destructive nanotechnology into the food distribution system and other products, and knowledge about certain activities within the U.S. government that are so highly secretive and classified that even Congress isn't aware or in control of them. Greetings, I'm your host, Mel Fabregas at Veritas Radio. If you want to listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. I always love to hear from you. Tonight's special guest is Sister Carrie Berner, a founder of Christ the Wool Hermitages and Diversified Ministry. She is a former nun, whistleblower, speaker, author, revolutionary, reformer, consultant, researcher, program architect, and inventor. Carrie is the tip of the spear for exposing the dangers of weaponized nanotechnology deployed against civilians, herself included, and the need to safeguard all mankind from its many forms, including weaponized grades. She is the only known survivor of military-grade nanotechnology attacks who is free of the effects of this technology and who has come clean of it with verified evidence to let the world know there is, in fact, a remedy. Her website is clergyvictim.com and Sister Carrie Berner joins us directly from an undisclosed location. Hello, Sister Carrie, and welcome to Veritas. Hi, Mel. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining me. And did I pronounce your last name correctly? Berner, yes. Okay. And should I address you as Sister Carrie? Whatever you wish. Thank you. Well, I received messages, as I mentioned to you before, from alleged targeted individuals almost on a weekly basis. Honestly, I didn't expect this. This is happening all the time. I thought somebody was playing a prank on me, but this is happening more and more. And sometimes it's very difficult to discern truth from fiction, but someone compelled me to look into your story, and I've decided to proceed with an interview. For the record, because we just made contact a day or two ago, I didn't have the time to read your book, Divine Challenge, but I read an overview of your story in the hopes that we can discuss it. We can dissect it in chronological order from A to C. Do you think we can accomplish this in two hours? We'll do the best we can. Why don't we begin with your story? Take us all the way to the beginning. Okay. Well, um, I was actually uh, born as a twin. I have a twin sister, and um, I have a brother, and, you know, my mom raised us on her own. She did the best she could. The, the father wasn't present in the home. And then what happened was, as I grew older, um, through, you know, individuation and so forth, I started to fall in love with the Roman Catholic Church. We were brought up Protestant or 
uh, more of a, a Protestant flair or background, but we weren't practicing. So I noticed that in high school that there was a Roman Catholic church that was our bus stop, and I just felt this huge attraction. There was something ancient about it. And to me, ancient was authentic back then, so I started to explore that. And it was so cute. Um, before the, the, you know, getting on the, the bus, because I would stop into the church for like 10 minutes, you know, and just explore the church. It was absolutely beautiful, St. Joseph's Church in Charlton, Massachusetts. And uh, I, I ran into the priest and said, I, I want to be Catholic. And he says, okay. I says, well, I really, I want to be a nun. He says, well, yeah, you have to become Catholic first. And he, he thought that was funny. And so he says, well, why don't you go ahead and come to our classes for Rite of Christian Initiation for Adults? Now, this is back in 1992, 93. This is probably junior or senior year in high school. And so I did. I went through the, the, the RCIA and became a Roman Catholic to my joy. And then immediately following thereafter my confirmation in, in Eucharist, I went into a convent to explore, you know, the, the possibilities for becoming a nun. Now, canon law, the canon law of 1983 doesn't allow for new, brand new converts to, to become nuns because they have to make sure you have a solid footing and, you know, they're not going to take advantage of that engagement period of you just coming into the church. So my mother superior, Ter Ter Teresa Benaway, Mother Teresa Benaway of MICM, Manchipia Immaculatis Cordis Mariae. She was basically a uh, founder, one of the, the, the founders of um, St. Benedict Center in Still River, Massachusetts, one of the you know ladies that took on the baton from Sister Goddard Catherine Clark and Father Leonard Feeney, very famous. Um, and so they were famous for this teaching that they were, you know, preaching and teaching, which was something that the Catholic Church found very inconvenient that they would preach this at this time back in the 40s. But St. Benedict Center and the Boston Heresy case is a very, very big case. And they were teaching the extra ecclesium, the Lasalle's teachings, which I believed wholeheartedly, no salvation outside the Catholic Church. So this order of nuns was traditional, absolute, that was very attractive to me. They did the prayers in Latin. So we, we would gather several times throughout the day to do the offices, the divine offices, which is basically a breakdown of some of the Psalms, you know, uh, St. David's Psalms. And we would, you know, sing to the Blessed Mother and so forth. And, and, and it was a really lovely life. So for about five years, give or take, you know, you could see better in my book, Divine Challenge. You can get that at clergyvictim.com. Uh, and it's on the uh, backslash divine challenge. It's also on, the, I think it's the fourth tabulation down. So essentially, um, I fall in love with this convent. They fall in love with me and they say, you know what? We know you have to wait two years in order to be a nun, canonically by canon law, but I was able to, to find a provision in the canon law where they could accept what they call an oblate to the community. So I became like a tertiary, which is a, it's, it's like a, a lay chapter, let's say, or a lay association to the order, St. Benedict's uh, Center in, in Still River. Right away, I was able to enjoy that membership. And, and then I was received into the postulancy. Uh, I believe it was in 97, and uh, then became a novice. So I was actually registered in the book. My name was listed in the Catholic directory, but it's not under Kiri Bernor. It's under Sister Benjamin Bernor. And so that's going to be very important because in the future, I have to say that I came across a Raymond Delisle and others within the their spokespersons for the Diocese of Worcester, and they actually made allegations that I was never a nun. So uh, I was able to collect that data and take photographs of these actual periodicals that you can't get unless you they're locked behind, you know, they're they're in in a location in the in the library and so forth. So I was able to find that. So that's important to just keep in mind because in the future that's what I had to deal with was the reconstruction of my history per se. So then, 
Which they tried uh, to erase. That's right. That's right. So then at this stage, after five and a half years in the convent um, and falling in love with all this Latin and, you know, connecting to God in this way, and the people were awesome. I loved the sisters. I still do. You know, many of them have passed on to the next life with the Lord. Um, But I felt this deep calling to become a hermit and to become, to go into the contemplative life. I was reading books at the time, like, you know, St. Anthony of the Desert and, you know, uh, the, the, the Desert Fathers and the Mothers of the Church. And I was absolutely just taken by it. And, you know... You're cutting funny. off, by the way. Can you repeat that, please? Oh, absolutely. That I fell in love with the writings of the early Fathers and Mothers of the Church. So when, you know, this deep calling of exploring becoming a hermit or a contemplative nun. See, these are the writings that really got me interested in that kind of a lifestyle. So my mother superior gave me a whole year to pray about it. And she prayed with me for a whole year and we didn't choose to do anything. I just kept a journal and I prayed for all the things she asked me to pray for. And she designated a special holy hour, which is where you know, a nun will go to the chapel and sit there for an hour in front of what they call the Blessed Sacrament, which is the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. That's what they believe in in that tradition. So I did that for a whole year. And Mother and I determined with my novice mistress that the best thing to do is to follow God's calling. And, And so therefore, I left the convent with their blessing, with the blessing of the Mother Superior. And even after I left the convent, I became much closer friends with her. Um, she's, I just love this Mother Teresa Benaway. She would, she didn't even have anybody in my cell, in my room, that's what they call them, cells, uh, for a very long time after I left. So that if I wanted to come back and visit, my bed would still be available to me. She was just a love, really precious soul. Uh, and of course, she's went home to the Lord too. That was a very hard thing to go through. So, for me anyways. So then at this stage, I I leave and then I have to go, I go back to my hometown, which was Spencer, Massachusetts, to live with my uncle for several months so I could get on my feet. He was really kind to open his doors. But I was never in the world. When I went into the convent, I went straight from high school graduation, like within a month, right directly into the convent. So I had no skills. I didn't even know how to write a check. I didn't understand the concept of paying rent. None of it made sense to me. So I had a crash course in common sense uh, on these matters for about, you know, several months with being with my uncle and my aunt in Spencer. So while I was seeking to get a footing in the world to establish like a base of operations, I would attend services, you know, which is, they call it the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass or Mass or Liturgy at this monastery, St. Joseph's Abbey in Spencer, Massachusetts. And I was there for about eight months. And of course, you know, I visited this monastery prior to having joined my convent, the convent I joined, St. Benedict Center. And um, at this point, you know, I fell in love with the Abbey, but I knew way back when I visited them the first time I was 15 years old, I knew that I'm, I'm, I'm a woman and these guys are all men and I can't join, but it just, I was just flabbergasted as to how I could be so in love with a monastery. And I felt the wrong gender. I'm just like, how could this be? This monastery is so beautiful. But I was like, no, I have to follow through with God's calling. And then God later had me visit this monastery and uh, I fell in love with it all, all over again. So th- these monks at St. Joseph's Abbey opened their hearts to me. Um, I was helping another elderly woman get into use the facilities, and I ended up bumping into a monk. His name was Brother Philippe Macram. And this brother and I started to talk, and he says, are, you know, are you the lady that prays in the side chapels? And I was so embarrassed because I was hoping no one would ever notice me because I was so quiet. and then he, Brother Philippe had me said, you've got to talk to this other monk. His name is Brother Patrick. And we became like this, just very close friends. And it was so wonderful. 
and uh, camaraderie, and we studied the same things, and we we opened each other's vistas, and you know it was just a really wonderful time. So within about two and a half years of my time, you know, being at St. Joseph's Abbey regularly, the monks started to open up possibilities to me, and you know said that essentially my calling deserves spiritual guidance, you know, from a director and specifically, you know, from a Cistercian, because that was the particular spirituality that I embraced and was very attracted to. So I found in my, in the writings of this saint, his name is St. Elred of Revo, uh, you know, writings that would basically be, you know, the following of a rule, they call it a Hararian, I'm doing the best I can to de- define terms, because everyone, I know that not everyone is a Catholic, so they may not understand this. So if you need clarification, feel free to let me know if I'm not making sense on something because of my cultural background. I grew up a Catholic, so I get uh, it, but others may not, so thank you. Excellent, excellent. So I embraced this treatise, and it was written by St. Edward of Revo. And St. Aylred wrote for his sister a horarium, a daily schedule and praxis, her, her spiritual practice and what she had to do. And so I embraced that because he was Cistercian. His sister embraced a Cistercian spirituality. And so the monks, several monks were in support of this. And they, they loved it to have this, you know, this, this other you know, lay person in the side chapel praying. A lot, you know, Brother Patrick told me... Uh, uh, on several occasions, you put in more time than we do in the chapel. I, I probably put in eight hours a day. Uh, in the days I didn't have to work, I would go from the beginning at, at 2.30 in the morning, pray until 8 o'clock at night after Compline, because I was just absolutely in love with God and felt his presence really strong at this wall that separated the lay chapel from, you know, the monk's chapel, which was the sanctuary area. And so I just, you know, really, really just wanted to be a part of this, this, you know, experience in a way that would be fitting and proper in accordance with canon law. And so I explored with the bishop at the time, becoming a a hermit nun under canon 603, where there's a provision for, for hermit nuns who could embrace any particular spirituality and they could you know, live close to a monastery or live on their own or live near a church, you know, as long as they stayed close to the participate, participating in the sacraments of the church, that was the goal, you know, to have the hermit, you know, close to, to a, a, a church family, which totally makes sense. So I enjoyed this relationship with the monks and not all the monks were in favor of it. You know, there was times that, you know, I experienced strange behavior. To me, it was strange uh, where I had the key. I was given the key by Brother Philippe, who alleged to have had permission from the abbot for me to have a key because I was, you know, there at the chapel and they didn't have a bathroom, you know, accompanying the side of the chapel. So this was, you know, very inconvenient to have to get in the car and drive all the way down to the restaurant to use the ladies room. And so the monks in their generosity and brother Robert also gave me the key uh, and said, just, you know, if you need to use the ladies room, just come up here to the guest house and go ahead and use the the ladies room. Well, when I was accompanying a friend to go use the ladies room, I would see people running to the door, getting ready to bolt it. And I'm like, wait a minute, this isn't right. (laughs) And because my friend, you know, she, she really had to go to the bathroom badly at that time. So, a letter went to the abbot. We explained what was going on. And the abbot, you know, just basically said that it was a daunting task that these people had to go through. And he apologized for that. So anyways, where the story takes us then is to an event that occurred that changed my entire path in life. And in, in the aspect of getting accompaniment, which is, you know, spiritual direction is, is the word that was used for Jesuit you know, understanding of spiritual counseling. In the Cistercian tradition, they use the word spiritual accompaniment. So uh, we, I was invited to connect with Father Joseph Chukong, you know, for a spiritual accompaniment session. And we did so. 
And that was August 23rd of 2001. And there's you know, I was friendly with him. We've had actually great conversations before. We probably met maybe two or three times before. And uh, all of our conversations were, you know, he, he wrote book. He wrote a book on contemplative experiences. Very up. You know, there's a lot of aspects in there that I enjoyed because I did my own studies into Taoism. And, and you know, I did my thesis on that. So when, when Father Joseph Tukong was writing about topics that, and he was bringing a connection between, you know, the writings of Taoist, you know, teachers and connecting it into how we can implement the wisdom of that, you know, into you know, creating an environment of prayer, then you can pray, you know. So I could see there's a really a, a nice sequence to that. Not that I agree with syncretism, but I could see that it's hard, you know, to, for people to pray unless they're relaxed first. So these were things that I enjoyed in Father's book. So we sat down and we talked about it. And in the course of the discussion, now keep in mind, I was going to this monastery almost daily and to the point where visitors were coming to the monastery from other countries and seeing that I was like this this hermit, you know, that just kind of was there at the side chapels at St. Joseph's. And you were the only female there, the only nun, correct? That's right. Right. And again, I didn't enjoy, you know, a canonical connection with St. Joseph's Abbey, but I was seeking under their direction specifically. Um, later, you know, Father Isaac comes into the picture and others where I wouldn't be a liability to the Abbey. It would just be that I would spiritually have a, an alignment with them and participate in services and so forth. Um and that's it. I didn't have any expectations on the Abbey. That's the whole the whole wonder and the, the brilliance of Canon 603. It was set up so that a hermit would have to become responsible for themselves and navigate themselves in the world and not, you know, be asking the Abbey for health care, you know, or anything like that. That's there was, you know, they there's provision that was made for that in the canons. So at this stage, the priest is talking about. I think it was uh, the Song of Songs, chapter 12, verse 1. And he's getting into breasts and he's talking about, you know, the lover and the beloved and the Song of Songs. And I'm thinking, okay, that's cool, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. And uh, then he starts talking about other women's breasts and saying, you know, there's women that come into the side chapel and I pray that nobody abuses their breasts. And I'm thinking, this guy's got a thing about breasts, you know? And uh, I'm like, all right. So in the course of that conversation, you know, it, it was traditional. It's a known thing that a nun would take advantage of the aspect of going to confession if they're actually meeting with a priest so they can do basically, you know, uh, be efficient and have their spiritual session and then their confession, which is one of the sacraments. So I partook of the sacrament of confession with Father Joseph Jukon being the confessor. and. Uh, and, you know, I, I hugged him. I expressed my, my gratitude for his time. I think we talked, you know, the details are in my book. I'm, I apologize. It's been so long. But, you know, for a good, you know, at certainly more than an hour. And I expressed my gratitude, got up, went to the table, went to go grab my books. And before doing that, the priest lunges out and grabs my left breast. And I'm thinking, what the heck is going on here? And I'm going into a shock phase now because I, my spirit was wide open. And I grew up in an environment where I didn't trust the environment I grew up in. But when I became a Roman Catholic, my whole heart was wide open. And so this, this caused spiritual, it just shook me spiritually. And it's, you know, some people might say, well, that was only a boob grab. It was not really whatever. But for someone who's pursuing celibate lifestyle and not into, you know, uh, sexuality, you know, then this would be a shock, you know, especially from a priest. You wouldn't expect that, you know. So then at this stage, I was beyond the beyonds in shock. I waited for father said, don't say this to anybody. He also said that in the context of the meeting that he changed the entire course of the discourse, saying he had permission from the abbot to talk to me insofar as I would agree to 
pack up my bags and go live at a convent in Rentham, Massachusetts. So I said, wait a minute, I don't understand this. I've been going on a path for two and a half years, seeking to establish to per, per, purchasing property abutting the St. Joseph's Abbey. And now I'm, I'm going down this road and I'm doing all the things that, you know, I centered my life around this monastery. And now you're asking me to just completely stop all my pursuits midstream to go becoming a Cenobitic, which means communally, communal living, none. So I said, wait a minute, uh, you know, I'll pray about it. I didn't say no to the father, to Father Joseph, but that to me was a red flag. And, and so in the course of that conversation, when he was saying, you know, things that were outside of what I would understand that he would be in support of, um, he wasn't supportive. Father Joseph was in support of my calling. I have it all documented in my journal. So I didn't understand why everything changed midstream. So I waited till Brother Philippe went on duty. They have this duty that's called Porter, where a monk would actually accompany. Uh, he would be in the guest quarters waiting for guests to call or to show up at the door. And he would have, he would, that's his job. He would have to uh, attend to that, you know, guest. So I waited for Brother Philippe. And it was normal for us to get together on Thursday nights. And he would, I mean, we were doing this for years and he would have a meal prepared for me and we would sit at his desk and we would talk. So he prepared a meal. We sat and we talked and I said, this is something really bad happened. And I don't understand why this happened. So I went with him to, to a meeting, you know, after that, because I said, well, I've never gotten drunk before. I might as well. So he took me to a uh, an AA meeting, and uh, we sat and talked in the car until three in the morning. And he said to me, "Now all bets are off now because this whole thing came out. Everything came out. You know, uh, the cat came out of the bag years ago." But at the time, he said, and he was Egyptian. He said, "Sister Teddy, you don't uh, you don't understand. If you bring this allegation forward to regarding uh, the Abbey, the Abbey will hurt you very, very badly." You don't understand. And he's right. I didn't understand. I had no clue what was going on. And he tried to warn well, Was that, I don't mean to interrupt you, but was that the only incident? Because I haven't read your, your story. Was that the first incident of many? Uh, that was the first incident with me and the last incident sexually, physically okay. with me. Then I came to learn of others and an onslaught of and a huge a number of other victims of this monastery where the perpetrators were literally practicing satanic witchcraft, literally. I mean, I won't get into all the details, but, you know, it was it was gross, grotesque what was going on. And, you know, serial offenders and going into the now this wasn't Father Chukon, but there was someone else that was there at the monastery. And, and he would use the, the confessional as a screen. What was the archdiocese aware of this? Were they sanctioning these practices? Oh, well, <laughs> see, there's always a public, there's a public um, policy and there's a private policy, a secret but true policy. And so uh, in the public view, no, they would not be in acquiescence, in agreement to these things, to this kind of modality, you know, of using the, the, the confession as a as an intelligence way to gather intelligence. But when you look behind the scenes and see the number of victims that were involved with this, just this one priest alone, and I've got plenty of others, monks and priests. I mean, the, the stuff this guy was doing, he was finding out if people were damaged goods, and then he would come in the place of Christ, that's the, what they believe, which is a heresy, and, you know, try seek to... Uh, heal or help be a healing presence to those who were abused by their grandfathers or, you know, from their childhood. And these are vulnerable adults that had very not good self-esteem. So they would pray on the weak is what you're saying. Absolutely. And it was systemic. It wasn't just one person. There was a list of them. And they, and I only came to know about that after my situation ended up in the courts because I saw it. With every ounce of my being to resolve this privately, I went to, first I told Brother Philippe and I said, okay, fine, 
I'll keep my mouth shut. I'll be quiet because I don't want anyone to kick me out of the monastery. I want to be here. I want to pray. And then here's the problem. About a month later, I went to St. Scholastica Priory in Petersham, Massachusetts, and talked with a sister, Myron Maloof. And sister said, oh, my God, this happened to someone else. And she didn't tell me the name of the victim, but later I came into contact with her. And she's allowed me to disclose her. She's Miriam Singleton. She's in my book, too. She's a courageous woman. And so when this happened to someone else and it was brought to the Abbey authorities' attention about over a decade prior to my situation happening, I realized I was like, oh, no, I have to do something about this, and I, I don't want to lose the Abbey, because it was the, the one place I felt unconditional love. <laughs> so at this stage, that's when I said to Sister Mariam, let's see if we can resolve this privately in-house. So there was a priest that was visiting from St. Joseph's Abbey to St. Scholastica's Priory, because, you know, St. Joseph's Abbey was, you know, generous with their priest and, you know, you know, having them assist with giving the nuns confessions, right? And the priest here was really a good guy. Um, Simon, Father Simon, uh, Raphael Simon, he's passed away. And Father Ra- Raphael, he's a convert from Judaism to, to Catholicism. Um, he suggested that, you know, why don't I bring this to the attention of Father Joseph and let's see if we can work this out and have Father Joseph ask the abbot to to take him out of ministry so he's not alone with women. And so I said, that's a great idea. Let's do it. And I, I related all my message through to Sister Mariam and had her do the negotiations with this priest. So Father Joseph completely denied it the first time. Then when Sister Mariam brought up the other victim's name, he didn't deny it. He says, I'm sorry, I'll do better next time. And I said, that is not going to work for me. So then at that stage, I went, I was cleaning churches at the time, and I went to St. Mary's Church in Southbridge. Father Peter Joyce was the one there. The, he's a good priest there. And I told him my story, and he says, you ha- it's, it's going to be better for you in the long run to let this story out. You, and he called the district attorney's office. And as soon as he did that, you know, I was involved in a criminal case where I was the witness for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and there's no way to get out of it. <laughs> Once it's out there, it's out there. And, you know, so Father Peter, you know, he tried, he helped me to try to negotiate this thing privately with the Abbey before we went to those measures. And at that stage, that's when Father Isaac, who is heading the investigation in the Abbey on this issue, he was becoming absolutely vicious. I mean, he would we would we spoke for several hours i kept journals about it and then he would start to undermine my credibility when it was my desire to just all i wanted was the priest to say i'm sorry to acknowledge what happened and say okay i don't need to be in ministry i didn't want any money i wasn't trying to do anything to expose anything at the time i just wanted the right thing to be done at least what i thought was the right thing at the time with my knowledge so then uh at this stage father calls the DA. Now I'm in, I'm stuck. So I didn't want to do this. None of us wanted to do it. We ended up going to court. The entire case was botched. We had to change the trial date to accommodate having father, uh, father Peter Joyce come in as my testimonial witness to my character because father Isaac, who headed the investigation, had an equal platform. He had an even platform and was able to speak to the Father Joseph Chukong situation. And Father Joseph, of course, he could speak. And when we went to court, people could see this happening. My sister was there. Brenda was there. There was others that were there who watched this literally happen. Father Joseph and I looked at each other, and we both were saying to each other, we don't, I don't want to do this. And he was yelling at Father Isaac, I don't want to do this. But when he shuffled into that courtroom, He was either heavily drugged or I don't even know what happened to him. But none of us wanted to do this. You Uh, wanted to do this this internally. You wanted to solve this within, quote unquote, the family, not bring the, quote unquote, dirty laundry out in public. Absolutely. Because my calling was to be a hermit. I didn't want my name plastered out there in my face. And, you know, it, it was really crazy. It was when I was trying to explain my story in front of a jury and they were looking at me like I was speaking Chinese and I'm like, Oh no, this isn't good because how can I instruct the jury? How can I, 
there's no way they, they when you're in a courtroom there's it's not a dialogue like this it's they have you know prescribed questions for you <laughs> in a certain way they ask the questions and so there's no way that you could just sit down and explain your story so in a way that would educate the 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 jury appropriately so so father joseph basically denies this ever happens he says not at all not at all not at all when you know anthony marotta you know the commonwealth attorney uh, asked him if he had touched my breast and he said not at all not at all I had already the other victim reached out to Abbott Damien Carr, begging him to not let my case go to trial, to see what we could all do to resolve this in-house. And he never responded to her. He didn't respond to her. We sent it to the Bishop of Worcester, and he didn't respond. Um, And it it was just like on and on and on. You do the best you can. I went all the way to the Apostolic Nuncio, Brother Alphonsus Maria, a friend of mine, who is a monk at St. Benedict's Abbey in Still River, Massachusetts, precious soul, he reached out to Gabriel Montalvo. And Gabriel Montalvo just said, have her exhaust all her, all her administrative remedies. But he couldn't do anything to help, which was astounding to me. Then I went to Mitchell Garabedian and talked to him. And this was after I lost, because, of course, the verdict came down, uh, you know, freeing father from this allegation, you know, that, you know, he's not guilty. And I couldn't believe it, not guilty verdict. So that crushed me because at this time I was honest under oath. I was not lying. I was, even if things would damage me, I was honest about it. Cause when, when the Abbey in, you know, when they, basically they served me with a document called an order of no trespass, which is similar to a restraining order. And the funny thing is it's actually under a different code in the law. It's for tenants and so forth. But somehow, you know, it applied to me, at least it's so it seems. And I would go to my beloved area within the chapel at the wall, but I would dress up in disguises when they put this order on me. I didn't agree with it. There's a teaching by St. Thomas Aquinas in in, in law where if, if, if it's not, you know, a, if it's not tr- a true law, then it's not a law that has to be followed if it's not a law that's basically derived from God. So I'm like, how could it be that they would kick me out of God's house? See, I wasn't looking at this as a corporation. I was looking at this as totally purely spiritual. I was in my 20s and completely naive. So at this stage, you know, we I lost the case. And, you know, I told the truth that absolutely, I went there in disguises to pray at the wall, not to see any monks. And, you know, the newspapers came out the following day trying to paint me out as being crazy. And then I, I won in the court of public opinion. I didn't win in the verdict, but I definitely won in the court of public opinion. Cause after that, I made it my calling to get the truth and the whole story out. And so I was at this point, this is where I started to notice strange things happen. My phone was acting strange. I went to the police, to Trooper Ryan, and told him, this was the same detective that I gave my police report to, and I told him there were strange things happening, and I wanted it to be looked into, and he, he treated me completely different. Then I went to Almost other as if he was talked to? Exactly. Because <laughs> he's a nice guy. You know, he's a wonderful, nice guy. So I couldn't understand how his attitude would change towards me. And by the way, just he called me. Just to, I don't mean to interrupt you. I apologize. But just just to, to plant the seed here, because when I started reading your story, there are two incredible things happening here. First of all, you have the clergy part and you have the government part. And this is the first time where I've seen a story that combines both. First, you have the Catholic Church protecting itself, and it's using now the resources of the federal government who gets involved, and then that's what the next part of your story will be. But am I on the right track here? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, please proceed. Sorry. Absolutely. No, please do. Absolutely interject. So then, at this stage in the game, uh, strange behaviors, so that's when I became really concerned. I'm like, I think I'm in over my head here. Um, 
And I was working with a friend of mine named Mary T. Jean. She headed a website called thewisterdvoice.com. And she was helping many others who were victimized by clergy all over the state of Massachusetts and even into Connecticut, too. And so I worked with her for a period of about, I'd say, maybe six or seven years, you know, on and off, uh, you know, just, you know, donating my time and, and so forth. And I learned a lot in those seven years. Um, first of all, I really recognized I went up against Anthony Marotta and filled out, you know, a complaint against his bar card and basically showed how my case was botched by design. And I even spoke with professors in universities and they even said, I'm off the record, but I'm going to give you this one. And they you know, give me little clues just to add it in to the complaint. He said, nothing's going to happen of it, but you might as well get it on the record. So when I realized my case, my case was used as the poster child for, for those who would go against St. Joseph's Abbey, they will be, they will be humiliated to no end. And I know it wasn't easy for their side either. If they had better management, none of this would have ever happened, you know, but also there's a reason the Lord allowed it to happen because there's something much deeper. And this was only the tip of the iceberg. This boob grab situation with me was only the tip of the iceberg. And so we'll, we'll be unfolding and unpacking that too. So at this stage, now I'm concerned I start to study more about the Roman Catholic Church. I tried to figure out why this would happen to me and why, what, what's such a big deal? Why is it it's such a big deal to go against this girl and try to and win against her and, and all this stuff? Why, why is it such a big deal to not just do the right thing, be a Christian? And that's when I found out, you know, I was in touch with Greg Szymanski, uh, and I did a show with him. And I came across documents that was extremely disturbing. And these documents were actual photographs of Orthodox priests with their heads being sawed off in the Serbian genocide way back in the late 1930s under Ante Pavelic. There was a case called Alpin versus Vatican Bank. And I was astounded to see that Roman Catholic priests headed these concentration camps. Roman Catholic priests headed this stuff. And now I'm like, what is really going on here? And then I started to study more. And I called, you know, Greg. And Greg put me in touch. Greg Szymanski, he put me in touch with barrister attorney uh, uh, Jonathan Levy. And I asked him point blank, am I looking at something, you know, someone's made up on the internet or is this real? And he said, Oh sister, this is real. He represented these victims of genocide. And to this very day, they never got a remedy for over a decade. Courts in the ninth circuit out in, um, in California, there, nothing, no remedy. He, he was the one who forced the Vatican's hand to divulging the records uh, relating to the rat lines, you know, where the riches went, in the plunder from Camp Jasinovac all the way up to the Vatican. And he basically found out it's on the ledger. The teeth of these victims were held in the vault at the Vatican. This is where I really became aware. I'm involved in a Catholic church. I'm involved in something that is not what I originally intended to convert Did to. you say the teeth and of these Orthodox priests that had their heads cut off were inside of the vault of the Vatican? The, yeah, the, the gold, gold of their teeth. In their, yeah. Huh. Yeah. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I was in utter shock. I went and I investigated. I went to Orthodox churches and I said, listen, I just need to know, is this true? And I, I even got pretty aggressive with the priest there. I said, listen, I'm asking you and I need to know the truth. And if you guys are going to cover or hide or lie about the history on any of this stuff, I'm going to write you off. Why too. were these priests killed, first I'm of all? Why? Because they, good question. Good question. There was a policy. Let me just read this to you. This is, this was when the Astashi, uh, their policy was to kill. Let me see if I could find the actual, because I prepared a little bit on this, because I knew this was going to come up. Um, Did they know something okay, that they shouldn't have known? 
they were Orthodox, and the Orthodox was the true pillar of the faith before, in 19, uh, excuse me, in 1054, when there was a schism, Romanism is the one who broke away from, from the true faith, which was Orthodoxy. And there's a record of this by Father Vladimir. There's a book called The Papacy by Abby Goutte. I think it's G-U-E-T-T-E, and I could certainly send you references to everything here. In this book, there was a Roman Catholic priest in the late 1800s who had access to the Vatican archives, and he studied this to find out the primacy of the, 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 the Pope's chair, the Peter's chair in, in, in Rome, to find out, is it true? You know, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, there's many meanings to what that means, and it certainly is not what Rome has put out there. And so the, the Orthodox have to be exterminated because anybody who has the power to, to fight the Vatican, any nation who has a capability to do that, they've all been exterminated. Every, and this is all, there's a, there's a wonderful historian I respect very much. His name is Eric John Phelps. He wrote the book, Vatican Assassins. I read the book. I, I told him 90-some percent of this is true to me. In, in my experience as a nun, you know, a former nun. And so I went through and, and read this thing and was absolutely, my jaw was on the floor and I could see the underpinnings of what was going on. It's essentially the Jesuits are the military arm of the Pope and they infiltrated our country and the Jesuits are the ones who killed Abraham Lincoln. The Jesuits are the ones and Cardinal Spellman behind the assassination of JFK. And there's a policy and it's, it's felt and it's tangible and it's all well documented in this Vatican assassins book. Then I pull the history from all this stuff and take the, the wide brush marks from that and then tidy it up and bring it into what's happening to us militarily right now. Are you saying sister Again, that the Catholic church has been infiltrated and case in point, we have the new Pope who happens to be the first Jesuit Pope. Am I correct? Absolutely. And they were, the Catholic Church has been infiltrated. You know, there's an excellent book, Malachi Martin, Windswept House. He is a, a Jesuit priest who completely blows this wide open. Very familiar with Father Father. Malachi Martin. <laughs> powerful, powerful. He talks about how Lucifer is the one that is in control of the Vatican. And so when you take all these sources, then you start to be able to gather a big picture together. And, and it's interesting in my, my, my connections, you know, which I'll get into, you know, later, but I was told basically by people within certain, you know, let's just say certain people that don't want to be disclosed that have access to certain databases. They basically told me the information you have, I, I said, it's not classified. I said, come on, give me a break. I don't have classified stuff. They said, uh, you might want to consider the fact that though the things you have are open source, it's the way you interpret it that is destroying a 200-year-old plan for this country, and you better stop it and stop being a shit disturber and shut up. That's what I, I have it recorded by an agent, a DOD agent, telling me this. This was back when I was on the run, but I'm sorry, I don't want to skip to, let me go back to the original intention behind the extermination regarding the case, Alprin versus Vatican Bank. One, uh, a third of the Serbian population in the independent state of Croatia were to be forcibly converted to Roman Catholicism. Two, a third of the Serbian population in Croatia were to be deported. Three, a third of the Serbian population in Croatia were to be killed. So basically, this was forced conversion. And even those who were converted, they just laughed and killed them anyway, oftentimes. So there's, there's something deeper going on here. So what's going on with the sex abuse stuff in our country? The sex abuse stuff, when you look, I, I served as a, an advocate in a private capacity, like I said, maybe seven years. And it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. This, each, each priest that's a serial offender with especially children now, because this is all done on purpose. It's called the Lavender Mafia. When the good Pope that was killed, he Pope John the First, I think he was, for 33 days he was Pope, and then he was 1978, killed. I remember. There's a, there is a detective 
Rothstein, who gets into this, Jim Rothstein, and he talks about why this pope was killed. Jim was on the phone. I think his name is, he was a friend. He's friends with a father, Ritter. I think that's his name, Ritter. He was out in, in New York helping young boys get off the streets. And when he would collect these homeless young boys off the streets, they would tell him stories. And this priest kept excellent archives on each story. And one of them actually had the, the, the shoe of Cardinal Spellman from the sexual ex- escapade that the, the, the Cardinal was engaging with, with this kid. And so at this time, what was happening was all the good priests were being turned away. Many of them were being turned away from seminaries at the coming of the new Pope, which was Paul VI, who's a total Lucifer. So now you've got the bad priests coming in, the ones that are, that are absolute, you know, uh, pedophiles and, and just... Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Did I confuse Did I confuse you when I said John Paul I, uh, 1978? Are we talking about a different pope before? Uh, no, we have Paul Paul I, I believe, is the one who was in for 33 days. Correct. And after, after he was killed, which was by poisoning, uh, Paul VI came It's in not Paul II? After him. No, it was Paul VI, and then after Paul VI, I think it was is, is John Paul. Okay. That. So Paul VI, though, is the one who brought in all, like, he absolutely changed everything in the, in completely derailed, you know, the church. And, you know, there's a prayer by St. Leo, I think it's at the end of the Latin Mass, where it talks about the smoke of Satan has entered into the church, Pope Leo XIII, and th- there it is. He, he brought it out about Paul VI. He, he was foretelling that <laughs> there's going to be a pope that's going to come in and lay this whole church open. To I'm that. sorry to interrupt you again, but I remember clearly John Paul VI, he actually died in 78. Then John Paul the uh, uh, John Paul I came along for 33 days, and that's the one that many suggest that was killed. And then John Paul II took over afterwards. You might have the data on this better in my head. I'd have to better in your memory. I'd have to go and look at okay. all this. From what I recall, from what I remember, this is what I remembered, is that Paul VI came at a time when, in order to, to suppress the good. 1963 is when John Paul VI came along. Okay, that I think, yeah. So who, there's, a, there's a, a pope that was good. He was killed, and then after the good pope was killed, and, and then this other Paul VI came into play, and and completely destroyed the the inner the, basically the politics as to how you know the Vatican operated. It really you know gave way to to the sicknesses that we're talking about today. So at this point, with Paul VI, you know, being connected, he was a Freemason, he was a Luciferian, and all of this there was an intention to get the priests to literally infect these kids with, you know, when, when someone's being sexually abused, what happens is they go through a trauma and this trauma, most of the time the kids relate to their abusers and, you know, you stick a gun in their hand when they're of military age. Now you're in good shape. Now, now these kids are ready to go and they're being primed for policies that are, are, they're very, very deep things are happening here. So let's go back to this just to, to solidify what we're saying. It was proven that the Vatican and the Jesuits were behind the wholesale slaughter of a people. It was proven also in the Vatican assassins that the Bolshevik revolution was also the wholesale slaughter of a nation of people who would be capable of resisting the Vatican. And so that's where we're going to, where, where we're going with this. Then years later in America, we have Kay Griggs. And Kay Griggs, who's married to one of the Illuminati insiders, you know, top intelligence and so forth, she exposed that the Jesuits took over our uh, armed forces. And this was all going around the same time. So the sex abuse of the priests, when each child, one priest, it would, I think the estimated amount of kids that they would get is like two to 300 each priest. Now you, those kids all grow up. That's why they called it the Lavender Mafia. Because now you've got an age of people that are growing up in extreme pain, 
and then you can get them ready to go. And they're not, they're not in, in a very good situation at all. It's, it's unbelievable what, how they've broken the minds of the people through this. This was all intention. This was all in, the fall of an empire happens with this sort of stuff. And the Roman church knows it, and they did it to us in America on purpose. This is all by design. There's many books on this. And, and you know, so I can definitely, and I'll be more than happy to supply you with, you know, Catholic and non-Catholic writers. Quick, on quick this, parenthesis, on this issue. going back to John Paul I, 1978 before John Paul II. That is the one that lasted 33 days and some speculated that he was poisoned. Do you know why? The reason why he was being poisoned, from what I understand through Jim Rothstein, is that John Paul I was going to have Jim Rothstein and Father Ritter expose the pedophile ring mm. in New York. And with Spelman, that, thank you for getting back to that. Thank you. Um, so that's why. And the phone wasn't, you know, it was tapped, obviously. So when the Pope called, the priest, Father Ritter, and said, it's okay, you don't have to do parish work. I'm going to give you this assignment and go for it, get it done, and expose this Spellman that he was toast, it was over. And wasn't it interesting that then John Paul II came along, and he and Ronald Reagan were shot very close, at a time that was very close, and they also died at a time that it was very close. Do you know why he was really shot? John Paul II. I don't know about that. I don't know about as far as the connection between. I do know there is something interesting in our history that, uh, you know, Morse code, like Samuel Morse. Samuel Morse, way back, basically said, we as a country, America, are not going to recognize Vatican diplomatic relations to America. We're not going to do it. It's interesting that when Reagan came along, after I don't know how many years it was, but Reagan comes along and he opens up diplomatic relations to the Vatican. 1980, 288. Yeah. Yeah, so that's interesting because oftentimes when you look into Tom Doyle, Father Tom Doyle, he talks about, he's a canon lawyer, and tremendous resource went to study all the, the, the clergy abuse stuff. He gets into how you know, these nuncios and these, you know, the ambassadors and these locations, right, are all being used to, to house evidence so that it can't be found when you're getting ready to do a, a case. You know, that's actually in the movie Spotlight, you know, the movie Spotlight about the, the Boston sex. Oh, yeah, cases, sure. You know, Definitely. So that's some powerful stuff, too. Um, so then... You know, at this stage, I was, you know, going back just, just to give a big picture of this, because I wanted to give a little history to show that, okay, if it's happened in the past, we need to be paying attention about our future. And America, obviously, is in the crosshairs of somebody. And so, uh, you know, and it's my complete belief that it's America's in the crosshairs of the Jesuits. They, I don't believe there would be uh, something on the book ca called the Logan Act if, if there wasn't a concern about this at one time. So um, now we go back to the case. I lost the case. It went, the, won the court of public opinion. I started to launch this website. I started to go to newspapers. David Dorr of the Spencer New Leader sat down. He wanted to interview me. Every move I made, they, all, they already had a counter move, and they would do it before I could even execute on anything. So I knew I was being followed. And then David Dorr, when I set up the the conference with him to have a, you know, an interview. He said, he called me within 20 minutes of my, well, I don't, what is it? No, within an hour and a half of my dropping paperwork at the Spencer New Leader, and, which is a newspaper. I dropped paperwork as soon as I got back from the district attorney's office, because I didn't know if any of my faxes would ever go through. So I dropped the packages there. And David called me and said, um, I, I'm just curious, did you, you know, did you call anybody, you know, after we set up a, a conference? Cause we had just set up a time and he, he asked me, you know, when we were face to face, he said, I'm really concerned about you. And I said, Oh, come on now, you know, everything's okay. 
And so we met, we got face to face together and I had my sister and friends present. And he said, I just have to ask you, did you talk to anybody within an hour and a half of, of us setting a meeting or 20 minutes of setting the meeting? I'm sorry. I don't, my, my details are off because it's so, so, so long ago. So 20 minutes of our, of our setting up the meeting. And I said, no, 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 I haven't talked to anybody. I had to wait an hour and a half for everybody to get home from work to let them know that we were going to meet together. He says, I have to let you know that someone from St. Joseph's Abbey called me and threatened to kill me if I took on your case and put it in the paper. I said, wait a minute. I said, uh, he says, I'm not worried about me. I'm, I'm a journalist. I understand how these things work, but I'm really concerned about you. He said, do not use your telephone because I didn't have a cell phone at the time. So he said, do not use your telephone. That's when I knew I was in deep trouble at this stage. I was in over my head. And then I did, I started to learn from, from others at the top. I was in, in regular dialogues for a, long, a good period of time with Leo Lyons Zagami, who contacted me to help him uh, to do some translations for a document for, you know, some sort of lodge project he was involved in. And in the course of those discussions, he gave me a lot of intelligence and a lot of really good information to figure out, you know, to connect the dots in my situation, what was going on. And so then at this stage, I get on the radio with with Greg Szymanski and I expose my story for the first time. And within less than two days, the Diocese of Worcester called me up and said, we need to talk. Let's get together. And I couldn't understand. I sent them letters. I tried to resolve with them privately. I tried sending emails. They wouldn't respond to me for several months. They weren't they would give me nothing. Then the second I get on the radio show and expose them with Mary T. Jean and other victims who called in on that, on, it's on my website, clergyvictim.com, under the articles, um, under the interviews tab. At this stage, I said, okay, I'll meet with you, but it will be at, in my own time. I'll meet with you at my own location. I'll, you know, so I, I met with the official uh, diocesan representative. And we talked and, you know, for about, let me see, it was probably 30 days after they asked me to to meet together. And I found a restaurant that I trusted (laughs) because I knew the owner and uh, they paid for my meal. And, you know, I talked, it was Sister Paula Kelleher and I held out the documents, you know, Crimen Solicitaciones, 1963, signed by Cardinal Ottaviani. And it said it right there on the, on the table. I said, so this is going to, we're going to have to get real and really talk because every other time we've ever talked, we get nowhere. And her face dropped and just says, you know what? Our system was set to fail us, but can we still be friends? And I said, absolutely. And that woman was courageous. She gave me the name of the person who was following me every single day and who was hired to take pictures of me. He was an investigator unbelievable. And so, you know, I just pray for her safety. But anyways, um, that's when I realized it's time for me to go. So I got up, I packed my stuff and I went to move to Texas and just thought, okay, enough is enough. I need a break from all this. I was burnt out. I, I saw a lot of things happen in the courts with regards to these other victims. And it was just too much to handle after seven years. I was major burnout. Then we get to uh, Texas. So I'm minding my business. So I believe, and I did one last radio show in 2008 of November. And that's when I exposed Edward John Mullaney, who's the priest that was involved in those, you know, sexual, you know, uh, situations with screening people in the confessional and so forth. So then I got that radio out of the way. And I didn't do many others after that was, and if I did, it was very, you know, not so controversial, more relaxed radio shows. And so, uh, I was studying private law and the FBI ended up wanting to talk with me in 2012. And later I didn't know what was going on, but I, later I figured it out. This is when things are transitioning to the federal government. Absolutely. Yeah, this is where things really, really changed. See, with my studies, 
And then the FBI wanting to meet with me, I was confused. I was befuddled. I didn't understand what they would want with me. But, you know, they were cordial. And so we talked and it worked out very well. We had a very good rapport with each other. And the question, though, that concerned me that they asked me was, do you believe the Pope owns us all through the collateralization of our birth certificates? And I'm like, come again? <laughs> what? I didn't say that, but I didn't answer this the question. This is the FBI asking you that I, question? Absolutely. Huh. And I have evidence of that. Yes, I do. Absolutely. That's, I, I just couldn't understand why they would want to talk with me. But later, maybe a year and a half later, I had access to someone who had special access to a system, and they found out that my record was under congressional seal. It was some sort of alphanumeric code. I don't know all that. I'm not a spook. We're talking about the birth certificate, not the certificate of baptism. Are we clear on that? Uh, yes. In this particular case, the FBI was asking about the birth certificate. Yes. Birth certificate. Because I've heard that it's the Federal Reserve who uses this as collateral or cattle. But you're saying the Vatican? The Vatican owns it. All of it. Thank you for listening to the first part of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the members section or subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, and other great products. Thank you.